17 here this morning. And please continue to pray for Joey. He came back from his treatments on on Thanksgiving and immediately caught a cold. <laughs> and so, uh, so he's back home and he's resting. And so please pray for him that he can get over this cold. Um, just, uh, you know, he doesn't seem to get a break from anything that's going on right now. And so keep praying for him. And, uh, uh, you know, um, and that God would touch and that God would heal uh, his situation there with the cancer. So um, Exodus chapter 17. Now, this route that we have, the Exodus that we are going through here in the book of Exodus, we see here um, in Exodus 15, we see them going from the Red Sea into the wilderness of Shur to Marah. And then we see them going from Marah to Elim. And then from Elim to the wilderness of Sin. And from the wilderness of Sin, we're going to see here in chapter 17, them going to Rephidim. However, there are a few more stops along the way. And so keep your hand here, but I want you to go over here to Numbers chapter 33. It's here in Numbers 33 that people try and track the route of the Exodus. And beginning here in verse 9, we're told, it says, And they moved from Marah and came to Elim, and at Elim were twelve springs of water, seventy palm trees, so they camped there. They moved from Elim and camped by the Red Sea, Yam Suf, and they moved from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. They journeyed from the wilderness of sin and camped at Dafka. Okay, so we don't see that in Exodus, but there's another stop along the way, and that's Dafka. And they departed from Dafka and camped at Alush. And so another place that we don't see along the way there in, in Exodus. And they moved from Alush and came to, camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink, and they departed from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. And so, last week we left off in chapter 16 where God provided manna from heaven in uh, Elim. And they go back and camp further down the Red Sea of Yamsuf. And then from the Red Sea they camp further down in the wilderness of Sin. And from there they go to Dafka and then they camp at Alush. And so the word Dafka there means knocking which is from the root word, which means to beat, to drive severely, to drive beasts. And so the reason I bring this up, because it, it seems to suggest a driving of animals, a flock, uh, uphill in the way of travel, uh, such as a wadi, not a wide plain or a plateau. And the other word here, alush, um, means a crowd of men, which would suggest as they're driving them, they're more in tight quarters. Okay, so it's, he's not, they're not driving him in a huge plateau somewhere along the line. And because of that, we have people that think that um, the actual route of the Exodus, let's see, do I have this on? I don't. You can see here that they show them, and this is Glenn Fritz, he shows them kind of coming this way, Aleem going down to Yom Sufir, coming back to Aleem 
wilderness of sin, going through this way over here, over to Dafka, Alush. This is where they think Dafka and Alush might be, is in this way. And as you can see, they're going into tight quarters here uh, as they go through here, kind of driving uphill to get on this side, which he would say is Rephidim, which he would say also the rock of Horeb is over here. Now, um, there, and then you go up this way to Mount Sinai. Now, I have no doubt myself personally that this is where my, Mount Sinai is. But there's other people that show them going to Mara over here and then back over and they show Elim over here and then going up here to the ceiling tiles and then coming back down this way, um, down into Horeb over here. And where the H is here is where they uh, see the Rock of Horeb, all right? Now, when we show you the Rock of Horeb, I, I, I really hope it's here. Because the rock I'm going to show you is a really cool rock that is split, split in two. Uh, Glenn Fritz thinks it's over here, and it's a basalt mound. Not nearly as impressive looking as a split rock of God splitting the rock. The way the split rock looks over here is so cool that I'm really hoping this has got to be it. This has got to be it right here. Um, regardless, we do, I think as we get closer to Mount Sinai in our teaching here, we're going to be able to show all the evidences that Mount Sinai is right here, you know, which is, which is really pretty cool. Okay. So with that, understand that the Israelites, as they continue their journey towards the promised land, God is going to continue to bring them to, from one difficult situation to another, because every difficult situation, every trial Okay, every tribulation, every difficulty is to get them to quickly go to God and to pray and submit and trust and know he certainly hasn't brought them this far to just kind of drop them off on the curb and, and, it's, and it's just, you know, you're on your own. We know this as believers in Christ Jesus. We see what God does in our life and then a difficulty come. It's not as though the Lord just backs off, okay? He's there with you as well. What are you going to do? Are you going to murmur? Are you going to complain? Or are you going to go directly to God? And this is what God wants from us. He wants God dependence. He wants us to be dependent on him, not on ourselves. He wants us to be dependent on him. And so every difficult situation is a testing from God. And so far, when we have watched Israel go through the Red Sea and everything else, every difficulty Every test that has come, they have failed miserably. Every new trial seemed to only bring out the worst in them. They're first brought to the place of Mara, three days after the marvelous victory at the Red Sea, at the Sea of Aqaba there. Mara's waters, when they first saw them, I'm sure that they were going, oh, awesome, three days without water, we have water, and then it's bitter, they can't drink it, it's brackish, it's poisoned. And so instead of waiting on the Lord and having a prayer meeting and seeing how God's going to provide, they immediately go and they have this complaint session and they grumble against Moses, which is really grumbling against God. But Moses does the right thing. He goes to God. He asks what to do. And God shows him a tree. And he says, I want you to throw that tree into the waters there. And so Moses obeys. He doesn't even ask, well, what's, what do you mean a tree? You know, what, what, what is that going to do? He doesn't do that. He just, he just, God just says, hey, see that tree over there? Yeah. Okay, I want you to throw that in the waters. Okay. And he does. And it makes the bitter waters sweet. 
And we were able to see uh, last time that a couple weeks ago that we see that Christ himself is, is spoken of of hanging on a tree. We see that in Galatians 3.13. We see all these typologies of, uh, of a future redeemer who is to come, a future Messiah who is to come. And Galatians 3.13 tells us, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. Peter himself sees this and says, Jesus, who himself bore our sins in his own body on a tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness by those whose stripes we are healed. What is the tree? It's the works of the Savior on the cross. And it is that cross that brings the sweetness to the bitterest thing known to man, and that is death. That is death. And so it is Christ who sweetens the present sufferings, who sweetens that death that is before all of us. And, the, uh, and this speaks of Mara. It speaks of the bitterness there. And yet it's the tree that brings life. In this world, we have bitterness because we're all facing death. And it's the tree of life, Jesus himself, what he did on the cross that takes away the bitterness of death. And so then God leads them to Elim. And there's plenty of water there. This is a time of refreshing. We've spoken about that in the midst of trials. When you come out of the trial, there's always going to be those seasons of refreshing and abundance of God pouring into us. You know, to strengthen us before, yes, before we go into the next trial, the next lesson that we need to learn. Well, after that time, there's another testing that's going to take place. And so in chapter 16, that chapter opens, if you look at it over here, it begins with and. There seems to be a specific connection here uh, when it starts off with and to connect it with chapter 15, from going from the, the, the bitter waters, the, the testing that took place there, a time of refreshing and a new testing is going to come their way. The event of murmuring and complaining there at Mara. So, and is to connect it to that and the amazing provision that came after that. And so it says, and what happens at this point? Well, what happens here is they, they're let off into the wilderness of sin. And there they begin to complain about the meal plan that they have. And so God provides them with quail that night and then brings them manna from heaven, which the psalmist himself calls angel's food. And he provides for them that for 40 years every morning. How on earth could you ever even think and wonder, is the Lord with us? Every morning you have this provision from God, this heavenly food from God, this supernatural food from God. Every morning, how could you ever wonder? I wonder if God's with us. I wonder if he's left us. I wonder if he's forsaken us. Amazing. And then we begin here in chapter 17. God leaves them into the wilderness again. They're going to find themselves without water. And you know why? Because they failed the first thirsty test. And now they're going to have a second thirsty test. And it begins here, then. Your Bible say then? It's actually the word and. Same word that we have in chapter 16. And so again, it's to connect 
to all the other testings up until this time. Let's read this here. Really should say, and, and all the congregation of the children of Israel set out their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. They've been here before. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now they accuse him of attempted murder. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Wow. The Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take your hand, your rod with which you struck the river and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. And you shall strike the rock. Water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel And because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Wow. They've probably, this is weeks from uh, the wilderness of sin by the time they get to this place. And so that's probably two, three weeks, maybe uh, two weeks at least, that they are getting bread every morning. They're getting up and they're just collecting this supernatural heavenly bread, angels food every single morning. And yet they ask the question, is the Lord among us or not? Wow, amazing. Here in chapter 17, verse 1, again it says, And all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. The purposes of these testings is to set us apart. It's called sanctification. God is trying to change his people. He's trying to get them to rely more upon him. He's trying to set them apart specifically for his purpose, for his glory. And so Rephidim here is the Hebrew word. It means resting place. And it seems that this resting place, well, this place was lacking. There's no water to drink. They've been here before. They've seen this situation in Marah. God provided for them then, certainly they're going to see a miracle again. Certainly God is going to do something else to provide for them. They should have learned this lesson by now. But again, it's another trial of faith. Are you going to believe? Are you going to depend upon God for your need? This once again illustrates for us the fact that the path of faith is always going to be a path of testing and trials. God wants to sanctify us, set us apart, again, for His purposes, so we can serve and worship Him. This is done when we've learned to have walked by faith and we have learned to depend upon Him. And our faith grows through the testings. As we stop and we seek the Lord and as we pray and we put things in His hands and then as we see Him lead and guide, we get it. And it's amazing. And it's really kind of fun. 
when you see him provide in that way. And so our faith grows from those testings, those trials. Are we going to be quick to seek him? You know, um, you will go through the same trial over and over and over again until you learn it. And then you'll go through it again. But I thought I learned this. Yeah, okay. But this is how you know you've really learned it, is when you go through that trial again and again, and how quickly do you go to the Lord when that trial appears? Okay? And so the quicker you go to the Lord, the more you've learned of the trial and, and, and you get it. And it's interesting to me that God always seems to answer in a different way, though. I've been through this before. So I'm expecting God to maybe answer this way, and he does, and he does it a completely different way. You know, you can't pigeonhole God. You can't say, oh, this is how he does things. You know, the infinite God and the finite itty-bitty Dave is going to all of a sudden explain God. You know, oh, this is how he's going to do it. We don't know that. All I know is he is going to do it. That's all I know. I don't know how, but he will. Let's wait on him. And let's just watch as he opens the door. And so the Israelites don't go to God. Well, they kind of do. They kind of go to Moses, which they should. He's the representative of God. But they should go with him with more of an attitude of, hey, you know, we're kind of thirsty. But we've seen God provide last time. And we, we saw that murmuring and complaining really isn't the right thing to do, you know, but you are his representative, so we're going to you, and you know our situation. Moses, you go to God, and then you tell us what we're supposed to do. That would be the best scenario there. That is what is supposed to happen. That isn't what happens. In verse 2, it says, Therefore, the people contended with Moses, Give us water that we may drink. No, please. Okay? It's a demand. Moses, give us water that we may drink. I have the numbers behind me. We all feel the same way. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? This is the fourth time the Israelites were guilty of complaining. We see it in Exodus 14. They complained about being trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. We see it in chapter 15. They complained there at, the, uh, at Marah uh, when the waters were bitter. They complained again of not liking the meal plan there in chapter 16. And here we are again. They have no water to drink and they complain and they blame Moses once again. This hostility seems to have taken on a more threatening tone though. This time Moses in verse 4 says, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And Moses' response to the people is, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? The word tempt there is nasah. And it means to test, to prove the charge against Moses is really a charge against God, and we see this in verse 3. And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses, said, why is it that you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children, our livestock, with thirst? And so again, they are saying that Moses is uh, attempting murder. But because they're really contending with God, then they're charging him with that. Why do you tempt the Lord? This is why the psalmist would say in Psalm 78, verse 40, how often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again, they have tempted or tested God. There are three sins that are behind this specific complaint. The sin of demanding from God what he ought to do. That's bold. I'll give him that. Give us water that we may drink. 
Instead, they should be seeking God and what He wanted them to do. And in this process, they can go to Moses himself and say, hey, what is it that we're supposed to do? See, as believers in Christ, if you know Jesus, in Hebrews 4.16, we're told, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that. I love that. Because I know Jesus, I can boldly go into the throne room of grace. It's a throne room of grace. And I can ask for his mercy. And I can ask for his help. Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do? What are we supposed to do here? What am I supposed to do in this situation? I love that. I don't have to demand anything from God. Seek and ye shall find. Ask. Jeremiah said, the Lord would say, uh, cry out to me and I will show you great and mighty things that you do not know. We can do that as children of God. We can cry out to God. And he wants to be able to show himself. He wants to be able to show himself. Second thing is thinking that God wants evil for them. Do you bring us out here to die of thirst? Thinking that God wants evil for them. Why is it you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us, our children, our livestock? They're accusing God of evil, wanting to bring his people harm. Yet God told them already that he wanted them to go three days out in the wilderness. He wanted them to be able to go out in order to worship and serve him. And that he was going to bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. Nope, you're a liar. You want to kill us. Wow. Three times it was explained to him in Exodus 3.8, verse 17 as well as Exodus 13.5. I'm going to bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey. They wouldn't be able to do that if God killed them all right then and there. And so, again, they're being called to worship Him, to serve Him, to be able to bring Him glory and purpose along the way there. Romans 8, 28 tells us, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And, and so those are things that we have to deal with as well. Sometimes a tragedy comes, crisis comes, no doubt about it. But if you're, you are a child of God and you've been walking with the Lord, then you've got to know somehow this is going to turn around and it will be for your good. It's going to grow you in your understanding, your faith in God, and your dependency in God. And nobody likes that, and we get that. And somehow along the line, it's going to be according to His purpose in your life as well. And it's going to be difficult. And it's not going to be fun, and we understand that. But know that God hasn't brought you on this path just to be mean and nasty and make your life miserable. And yet when we accuse God of doing that in our lives, we're, we're doing the same thing as Israel does here. The third sin here is questioning God's presence with him. Wow. He says that in verse 7, called the name Massah, Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel. They tempt the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? We often commit the same sin. Where are you, Lord? I don't know if you're with me anymore. I think you've forsaken me. And yet we're told in Hebrews 13, 5, he'll never leave you or forsake you. Paul himself tells in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? I believe if the Israelites had taken time to remember God's promises, 
and began to reflect just over the last few weeks of how God had provided for them. That had only been a month earlier or so that he parted the Red Sea. That, that had to affect you somehow. That had to, you know, uh, uh, chiseled a memory of that in your mind. I think I would have been thinking about that every night since that time. I would have played that back over and over that the opening of the Red Sea and walking through that and seeing God close it up and then all the, you know, Pharaoh's army being destroyed and then that song that they sung there at the end and man, just reflect back on God's promise, His goodness. They might have had a different attitude about their present circumstance, but they didn't pass that first thirsty test. And if you don't pass the first thirsty test, there's going to be a second thirsty test. And if you don't pass that test, there's going to be another thirsty test. And it's supposed to be this way here in the United States. That if you don't pass the first grade, you don't go on to second grade. Not so sure that's the way it is anymore. That's the way it's supposed to be. See, there's these exams, there's these tests that you have. There's a certain uh, standard that you have to be able to meet in order to go on to the next grade. And if that's not met, then guess what? We're going to keep on working on that until it is so you can go on to the next grade. Just here to tell you that is the way it is with the Lord. When we first come to the Lord, yeah, we kind of have kindergarten. We got to learn to play well with others. Okay. You just got to learn to play well with others, okay? And then once you kind of get that down, all of a sudden there's first grade. There's things that you need to learn. And if you don't learn it, you won't go to second grade. And then there are people who go to second grade and third grade. There are people who have graduated from grade school. And you can see in their relationship with the Lord that they're growing. And now they're in high school. I see people in the Lord getting their Ph.D., going through the most amazing things, the most difficult things, and they have a smile on their face. And they have the joy of the Lord. And when you see what they're going through, and they're able to continue to give praise to God and be able to say, he's got this. I just go, wow. Amazing. Amazing. But I praise God for those people. The sad part is, that really has nothing to do with age. I see people when they come to the Lord take these accelerated courses and do very, very well. And they continue to grow in their faith and dependency upon God and they're not necessarily silvered-haired. And yet they're already in the PhD program and yet I see other people that are silvered-haired and they're still in grade school. And it's not because they came to know the Lord in their 60s. It's because they just refuse to learn the lessons. And so you you can't graduate. And so having your PhD in your wilderness wanderings with the Lord doesn't have anything to do with age. It has to do with learning the lesson and knowing that it's going to come again. And can you give God praise and glory through it? And can you quickly go to him to pray and wait? Israel fails the thirsty test. So they're here again, and 
they're going to fail it again. Philippians, Philippians 2 tells us this. Do all things without murmuring and complaining and disputing. Why? So you could become blameless, harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation of whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. See, the world sees us complain just like they complain. And they want to be able to know, so what's the difference again? We're called not to complain, not to dispute. Christians who do not complain, they're going to shine. They're going to stand out. And the world needs to see this. The Israelites should have known how to handle this situation. They've had enough experience now with being in want and knowing what they're supposed to do, but they don't. And so they come to Moses demanding, give us water that we may drink. And then they accuse Moses again of wanting to kill them. And that's, that's really tempting God and testing him. Now, Amara, the people were tested, no water to drink. They didn't know how God was going to provide. So I'll give them that one. They murmur and they complain, but then they saw you know, God provide in a supernatural way. Well, now they're at the next test where they're thirsty again. I'm hoping that you know, that they would have learned from that. And so if you can learn from your mistakes, that's, that's good. When you look back at a difficulty you went through and go, man, I kind of freaked out a little bit there. Kind of lost my cool in the Lord. You know, other people saw it. Okay. You learn from it? I, I think so. Well, we'll find out very soon. Because God will bring something else your way to find out. Are you going to go quickly to the Lord? Here, their complaints have elevated to a higher level, going directly to God. They're tired of these tests. And now it's God who's on trial here. And in their eyes, God is failing their test. How do I know this? Because in verse 7, it's because, because they have tempted or tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? The place is called Massah, Meribah. And so Massah is a Hebrew word. Massah means to test, to prove, to bring to trial. What? Meribah means to strive, to argue, dispute, contention. Both are legal terms. As a matter of fact, the word contention there in verse 7, is the Hebrew word riv, and it means a contest, personal or legal, adversary, cause, chiding, contention, controversy, multitude, pleading, strife, striving, to bring suit, case at law. God charges the Israelites with bringing him into a legal dispute. And it is God accused Israel of putting him on trial. And the foundation of their complaints they didn't believe that God was adequately providing for them. Is the Lord among us or not? Moses, for 40 years later, reminded God's people of God. In Deuteronomy 33, 8, he says, Whom you tested at Massah and whom you contended at the waters of Meribah. It is God who's on trial here. People have their list of grievances of how God's not providing them in the way that they desire they want to argue and dispute his goodness towards them, demand compensation to be given. So they demand that water be given to drink. And then they bring their greatest charge against God, the charge of attempted murder, capital offense. Why would you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us? Us and our children, the livestock? That goes against the very nature and character of God. 
It's a direct attack on his character of who he is. In Lamentations 3.23, we told that God is faithful. In Psalm 18.30, his way is perfect. Psalm 50, verse 6, God is righteous, his way is justice. Psalm 116, the Lord is gracious, full of compassion. There's not enough room in the rest of my notes to put all the verses that speak about God's goodness, how he can do no wrong, that his ways are perfect, that righteous and justice are the foundation of his throne, it says in Psalm 89. He's always right and can do no wrong, and he is good. And they attack that. Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. God said he would take you to the land flowing with milk and honey. God cannot lie. He is faithful. His way is perfect. Again, your charges against God are wrong. His way is perfect. Yes, he brings you to a place without water to kill you. No. So you would seek him. So you would depend upon him. Last time you complained, did not trust, you failed the test. God brings you back to the thirsty test. Did you learn? They did not. Are you going to behave differently? No, we're going to be more abhorrent in our behavior. And are you going to pass this test? No, they do not. So Moses cries out to the Lord in verse 4, saying, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. In other words, the people are going, look, if we're going to die, you're going to die first. (laughs) Okay, we'll stone you before we die. Okay. And so, um, and by the way, that's a very easy thing to do if you've ever been that part of the, the world, uh, you know, that um, h- how are we going to kill this person? <laughs> Stones. They're, <laughs> they're everywhere, you know. So that'd be a very quick way to execute someone. Um, and so this sin at this point in time seems to me it cannot go unpunished. They have whined and complained all along the way. I'm thinking, Lord, you have to judge them now. Punishment must come. And it does. Look what it says here in verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, go before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand your rod which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He says, take some of the elders. In ancient times, the assembly of the elders was to pass judgment on a disputed matter. And so God tells Moses to bring his rod in, in, in this case. And the rod speaks of judgment. The rod that God gave Moses at the burning bush was representing God's power and authority as judge. He struck the river with the rod. It was judgment being brought upon Egypt. Here is the rock of Horeb right here. Let's take a look at it. Isn't that impressive? It may look familiar to some of you because this is rabbit ears pass. 
but it kind of looks like the Rock of Horeb. Let's look at the real Rock of Horeb. Look at that. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? That's why I really want this to be the Rock of Horeb. You know, this is the one that's more uh, a couple miles from uh, Mount Sinai. It's in the proximity of where everything is kind of happens that we see in God's Word. And so, let's show the next slide here. So, this is a closer. This is how it would have the artist's rendition of its splitting water coming out and, and flowing down. And you can see how smooth these stones are, which shows an abundance of water coming down this way. And so um, that, we'll, we'll look at this again in the proximity there of Mount Sinai, where we believe Mount Sinai is there in Midian, just like the Bible says, um, as we get a little closer to uh, Sinai. Um, but uh, again, Moses takes the elders, he takes the rod, the authority and judgment is about to happen. God is about to judge Israel's sin in a very, very profound way. Interesting how the rock is described frequently in God's word for God himself. Genesis 49, 24, by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, from there is a shepherd, the stone of Israel. 2 Samuel twenty two forty seven. the Lord lives, blessed be the rock, let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. Psalm 18, 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. My deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, Psalm 95.1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. There's another 40 verses I can go on, how God is the rock. Jesus points to the rock being himself upon Peter's confession in Matthew 16.18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, speaking of himself, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against us. The rock speaks of stability, something that cannot be moved. Jesus speaks about himself again in Matthew 7, 24, when he says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house, it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. In Genesis 49, 24b, again, by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. The mighty God is the one from whom the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the Messiah, will come. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Jesus also the stone of Israel. In Psalm 118, 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus uses that verse to speak of himself in Matthew 21, 42. Jesus said, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, given the nation bearing fruits of it. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Isaiah 28, 16 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Peter puts Psalm 118, 22 and Isaiah 28, 16 together to show that speaks of Christ, of Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 4, Coming to him, Jesus, as to the living stone, 
rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built upon a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifice, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Thus the rock, this stone, speaks of Jesus. Paul makes this very clear in his remarkable statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he makes this amazing interpretation of Exodus 17 that we're going over right now. When he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 1, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, meaning the Red Sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, manna. Jesus said, I am the bread. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. Wow. Wow. I want you to look here at Exodus 17, verse 5. God is going to judge their sin. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod. That is going to speak of judgment. Which you struck the river and go. And notice what it says here. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. The word on there is upon, also in. So before you strike the rock, who's going to be upon it? Who's going to be in it? Who's going to be on it? God is. God's presence is upon that rock. Might have been the pillar of cloud that descended upon that rock. We don't know exactly, but his presence is upon that rock. That represents something huge. And you shall strike the rock. Inference here is that with the rod, you will strike the rock, which speaks of God's presence, which Paul declares is Christ. You're going to bring judgment for their sin upon yourself. How does God judge the sin of mankind? Through His Son, Jesus who paid the penalty for our sin. And he shows he's doing it right here. All that whining and murmuring and complaining and not trusting and attacking his very character. That needs to be judged. I'm reading this and I'm going, would you please judge them? Would you please punish them? This is ridiculous. Look at all the things you've done for them. da 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 My list goes on and on. Would you please judge them? And then all of a sudden, a little voice says, why don't you reflect back on all the good things I've done with you? And how often have you complained about your situation, which was really a complaint against me? Aren't you glad I didn't judge you? Okay, that's different. Um, <laughs> it's not. I'm Israel. And yet God chose my, to judge my sin by taking it upon himself. 
Wow. The rock was Christ. Paul tells us that. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes or the strike upon him, he was healed. He heals us from death that we deserve. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. You know, we're, we're all there. We're all there. And yet, God in His mercy and grace takes it upon Himself. Punish Himself for our sin. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. You know, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that awesome? And the rock was Christ because it flowed with the water of life. We see this when Jesus died. The Roman soldier pierced Jesus' side, and we read here in John 19.34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. The blood was the blood he shed for our sins. The water showed that from death comes life. Jesus is the everlasting waters that bring life. We see this at the well when he's speaking to the Samaritan woman. Jesus, in speaking to the well water there, says, Jesus answered and said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But in speaking of himself, Jesus says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus is the provider of this water. And when you come to Jesus by faith, you're then filled with the Holy Spirit. And now Jesus flows within us to become those children of God that God has called us to be. This is why we read in Exodus 17, the result of the striking of that rock, of the judgment of that sin upon himself, and water came out of it that people may drink. Jesus said in John 7, 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, and that feast is tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. He hadn't died and and gone to be at the right hand of the Father yet when he spoke this. In Christ, God is for us like he was for Israel. He's our provider. He's our protector. He's ever-present Lord. This is what Paul meant when he said that rock was Christ. People want to hold God responsible. They're not happy with their situation. They don't like the journey that they're on. But instead of trusting God's plan, that which is really in their best interests, they want to complain and show, you're not really taking us down the journey, providing for us the way that we want to be provided. Listen, God's journey for you is going to take all sorts of twists and turns and take you to a place where you go, my, that, that doesn't look so great on the surface. And I don't know if I want to go there, you know. The desert is pretty in its own way. And, and, and when you go there at night, when it's cool, it's sunset, uh, it's sunrise, I, I, I love the desert. During the day, it stinks. I, I don't like the desert at all. It's hot. There is no water, you know. Aren't the cactus beautiful? Eh, not really. 
You can't really walk far in the desert without seeing bones. Hopefully they're animal bones, but bones nonetheless. It speaks of death. Yeah, we're going to go through the desert. Yeah, no, really don't. Love to go through the mountains, the lush mountains, the green, the rivers, the streams. And, but quite often, it's a desert. But God knows what's best for you. Had I not listened to God, I would never have come here. Honestly, when this was first, when God was still shaking me and saying, yeah, you're going to go to Calvary Castle Rock, I'm looking at going, yeah, no. They've got problems. <laughs> I, I don't look for those. I, in my flesh, avoid those. I, I look where I am and I, I see you doing amazing things at the ministry that I'm at right now. Why, why, why would I leave? Because I'm asking you to. Wow. That's a checkmate every time. D- Dave, do you trust me? I have. And you led me to this wonderful place of Elim. And, and, and you led me to this place where it's, it's flowing with waters and there's abundance going on in the ministry. And now you're asking me to leave. Yep. Oh, man. You guys, this church had problems. I didn't want to come. But I did. And it was part of God building me in my faith. And I'm so thankful that I did. Because I, I, I can see now, I, I've seen what God has done in the last close 13 years or so. And, and it's been blessed. It's been blessed. People have asked me before, are, are, you know, do you think God's going to lead you somewhere else? And I, I, my answer is I don't know. But if he does, I will go. And if God's leading you somewhere, you need to go. Okay. Um, but I will say this, I don't want to. If he leads me to Chicken Poo, Kansas, will you go? <laughs> I will. But I don't want to. But I will. Okay, wherever you have the Lord, I will go. So we need to trust God, plain and simple. God is the judge. We are not. He knows what's best for us. We do not. And we we do this instead of just trusting God when he's made it clear you're to go this direction, you're supposed to do this. We hold back thinking that he is leading us to a place that isn't as good as where you are. That's a mistake. When things go wrong, when life does not meet our expectations, we have a tendency to blame God, and when you do that, you put God on trial. C.S. Lewis said this, The ancient man used to approach God as the accused person approaching the judge. But with modern man, the roles are reversed. Man is the judge. God is the one on trial. Man is quite the kindly or the kingly judge. If God should have reasonably... If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, man is ready to listen to it. The trial might end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is on trial. If God is good, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? If God is, is, is so much love, why is there only one way of salvation? 
Those questions aren't wrong, by the way. I would encourage you to look at the attitude behind it, though. Can we honestly come to God before Him? Yeah, there's, there's answers to that. It's a very easy answer in my eyes. You know, God cares more about you understanding what sin has done to this world than to alleviate human suffering. You know who said that? Joni Erickson Tata. The one that is a quadriplegic and has been since she was 16. You want to talk about somebody who has suffered? And yet she's able to come and understand that conclusion? How much so should we? God wants us to understand that the reason you see all this stuff is because of you. It's not because of him. But God can stop it. Yeah, he could. Why doesn't he? Because you wouldn't come to know that you're a sinner in need of a Savior if he did that. I've often said this. We're going off script now, so God bless you. Um, The worst sin imaginable that goes on in the world, most people say, why would God allow that? Okay, take that away. God doesn't allow it. It's no longer in the world whatsoever. Whatever the next atrocious sin is, is going to be the same in your eyes as that other one because he never allowed it to happen. So you would never have known about that. So the only one you know about is this. And so it raises to the threshold of the most heinous sin ever committed because the other one he won't allow. And now all of a sudden he doesn't allow that. So now it goes down and it keeps going down and it keeps going down and it keeps going down. How could he allow for that plane to crash with those 300 people in it? Okay, what what would you allow? Well, 150. Okay. Now that's the threshold. That's the threshold. That's horrible. That's the worst. 150 people dying at at one time. Wherever you go, whatever war is happening, only 150 people could die at a time. That's the worst. How could God do that? You, You would still have the same angst. You would still have the same outrage because you don't know of a greater outrage. Now we bring it down even more. How could God allow for that guy to jump off and kill himself? Okay, God doesn't allow that anymore. And so every time someone jumps off, you know, that soft, fluffy landing. Everybody's just jumping off buildings. And they bring it down. I can't believe God allowed for that three-year-old to crash on his tricycle and skin his knee. Do you see all the blood? That's the worst threshold. That means you could do anything else and there's no consequence to it. God cares more that you come to understand what sin has done in the world than to alleviate human suffering. Because you lived in the world that the worst thing that can happen is that you could skin your knee and people aren't going to come to know the Lord that way. Why? Look how good things are that the worst thing that can happen is that you could skin your knee. You get that? I've, I've read books on this where someone uses a whole volume to describe why there's good and evil in the world, and I go, it's so easy. 
There's good and there is evil. Why is there evil? Because of the garden. And God isn't going to force you to love him. And there's a thing called, you know, free will that we see all the way in the garden. Take that away, you're a bunch of mindless robots. How do you have a relationship with a robot? And yet, we're in a society today with AI that we can. Wow. Crazy. They didn't get that last night, just so you know. So let's go over here to Numbers chapter 20, and we're going to end with this. You, you, you have about 38 years have passed. They were supposed to go into the promised land, and uh, they didn't. Giants are in the land. God brought you to this place. Go. He promised you a land. Fl- there it is. No, giants, we're afraid. We're not going to do it. Fine. Guess what? You're going to wander in the wilderness now for another 40 years, and guess what's going to happen? You're going to die off until I raise up a generation that will go in. Oh, okay, we'll go in now. No, too late. No, we're going. And they get beat up, and, you know, nothing works out for them. It's like, it's like opposite day with these guys. You know, say yes, so they'll say no. Say no, so they'll say yes. Tell them they're not going in, so they'll go in. Tell them to go in, so they don't go in. I mean, it's, I mean they have proven this time and time again. We will do the opposite of whatever you tell us to do. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But over here in Numbers chapter 20, we see this. They've been wandering down. It's about 38 years later. They didn't go into the promised land, so they're wandering around. And they're going to have another thirsty test. This new generation needs to have a thirsty test. So here in verse 1 of chapter 20, it says, The children of the Israel... The whole congregation came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there in the, and was buried there. And now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought us up the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness, and we and our animals should die here? Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranate. No, it's not. Because he brought you to the place that had that. You decided not to go. So now you're wandering around in a place that, no, isn't going to have your fig newtons and everything else. Okay? The pomegranates aren't going to grow there. All that fun and wonderful land flowing with milk and honey. Yeah, guess what? You don't get it. Because you chose not to go in. And so you, now you're in your place that is lacking in water and, and all sorts of foods and things like that because you chose not to go in there. Nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly of the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They fell on their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together and look what it says. Speak to the rock. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock. Give drink to the congregation and their animals. They are to speak to the rock. They don't strike the rock this time. Why don't you strike the rock this time? 
And so Tiffany put up Romans 6, 9. I know I'm going out of order like I did yesterday. It's kind of how I roll. Verse 9 says, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. The rock doesn't need to be struck again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. You know this word rock right here? Speak to the rock is different than the rock that is mentioned in Exodus 17. The rock here in Numbers 20 verse 8 is a, is a Hebrew word, shilah, means cliff or stronghold. It speaks of more of an elevated rock, okay, where Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father. He doesn't need to be struck. He doesn't need to be punished for the sin of mankind anymore. The rock in Hebrew, tesor, means massive stone, block of stone, boulder. Different. So we see this picture of Exodus 17, of the incarnation, the death of God, Son, Jesus Christ. Yet in Numbers 20, we see the rock already elevated, not supposed to be struck. You speak to it. Moses, if you strike it, you're going to mess up the typology. What does Moses do? He messes up the typology. Verse 10, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Did God tell them to say that? Must we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted his hand, struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. But then the Lord spoke. Ruh-roh. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me. I said, speak to the rock. I didn't say, strike it. To hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you should not bring this assembly in the land which I have given them. This is why Moses can't go into the promised land. He has to hand it off to Joshua. Are you kidding me? Romans 8 9 says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now you just speak to the rock. Because, see, Jesus has already been judged for our sin. So now we just speak. We believe. We speak to the rock and say, yes, I believe that you took out my sin on the cross. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I receive Jesus as my Savior, my Lord. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. And now you have everlasting life. Amen? Let's pray. 